If you can, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. And if you're able to stand, will you do so with me in reverence for the reading of God's Word? Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Dear precious God in heaven, we do thank you that your son Jesus Christ came out of that grave. That is something that we can never fully comprehend. It is beyond our science and beyond our measurements and beyond our comprehension. But your Son, Jesus Christ, fully human, yet fully God, died and came out of that grave. And as a result, dear God, this day, this Resurrection Sunday, dear Father, we remember and we celebrate and we praise that because of that resurrection, our sins are forgiven. They're wiped away. And so, God, I pray this morning as you speak, speak to us in your word, we understand the gravity of this, this truth that is for those who believe in Jesus Christ and only those who believe. It is something, Father God, that is a gift that we must love and embrace and take joy in. And so, God, speak to us now, I pray. Humble our hearts to listen and receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you very much. Chapter 20 of the Gospel of John sets up the stage here for Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus comes out of the grave and his disciples are still grieving over his death three days prior. The news had not quite sunk in that Jesus' promise not to be, stay in the grave, actually came to be. Jesus promised throughout his ministry, I will conquer death. And so these disciples had not quite fully grasped the truth of this because this supernatural truth was beyond their understanding. And we know that Jesus on that Sunday morning is seen by Mary Magdalene in the garden and then Mary Magdalene goes and tells the disciples, and it is Peter and John himself who come running to the, to the grave, to the sepulcher, to the tomb, and they realize that he's not there. The tomb is empty. And they are met by a, an angel on high who tells them that Jesus is no longer here. But when we come to the text here in chapter 20, where at the evening of Resurrection Sunday, that evening, going into the night, as the day is ending... All of Jesus's well, the remaining ten at this point, because Judas was gone, and we read later that Thomas, the twin, was not present at the moment. He was somewhere else. So there were ten of Jesus's twelve somewhere in a room in a house locked behind a door for fear of their lives because Jesus was crucified as an enemy of the state, and anyone connected to Jesus would have suffered the same penalty. 
And Jesus comes here in verse 19 on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now imagine this, being afraid and terrified that you would be facing trial and judgment yourself and you witnessed the horrendous death of your Savior and you were seeing that same end for yourself and you were hiding in fear hoping that you could get away and you were in that room terrified and tense and Jesus comes into the locked room. The door didn't even open. Jesus comes in and the first words that Jesus speaks are words of ministry and comfort, peace. It's okay. It's okay. I have known folks over the years who in their last hours of life as they're struggling for breath, as you sit and you hold their hands and you talk to them and they look back at you and you just ask them, how do you feel right now? Are you afraid? And they look at you eye to eye because they know Jesus and they say, it's okay. Have you ever talked to anyone like that at that moment? Jesus here comes and he says, peace, it's okay. And then we read here, of course, in verse 20, we see the introduction that Jesus shows them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad to see the Lord. But we also know down in verse 24 and 25, Thomas, who did not see these things, doubting Thomas, said, okay, you guys saw Jesus' hands and side. I won't believe until I see the same thing. So we know Thomas's doubt there. But what I want to focus on this morning is verses 21 through 23. Because here's the issue. See, some scholars argue what's going on here is not what many think is going on. Look here in verses 21 through 23. Let me read that again. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus here in verse 21 is speaking out a commission amongst his twelve. These remaining dedicated few... Jesus says, I know that you're in fear, but hold on, I've got a greater job for you. I'm sending you out. Verse 22, he says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. These three verses here are very important for the gospel. These three verses are important for us to understand on this Resurrection Sunday. It gives us an insight and a focus on the purpose of Christ's resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would be no forgiveness of sin. Without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. Without the resurrection, there would be no reason to gather here as Christians to worship. We would be be worshiping a dead God. How many religions around the world worship a deity or a a series of mythological deities? In in, in India, the Hindu religion, they have thousands of mythology gods. They don't even know all of them. My time in India in missionary work, when I talk to my hosts who do Christian work there, I just ask them, how does it work here in India competing against the Hindu religion and, and the culture of Hinduism? They said, it's not, I mean, it can be a problem. You've got the radicals who want to shut us down. He said, but for the most part, most Hindus don't even know the gods they worship. They couldn't list them off if they wanted to. They're just there because it's a celebration and a festival. Jesus here is 
the God we worship, He is God Almighty, and He is alive. We worship a living, a living, risen Lord. And what Jesus is doing here in verses twenty through uh, twenty-one through twenty-three, He is actually commissioning His twelve or the, these ten who are here, and He's saying, "I'm getting ready to send you out. I want you to have a sense of peace here. I know that you're struggling. I know that you're fearful, and you don't know what tomorrow brings." He said, "But let me tell you, there is peace in what I'm getting ready to have you do." He's commissioning here. This is these these verses are are verses of commission. If you are called to ministry in the kingdom, as all Christians are, every one of us, we have a role in the kingdom. We are God's priests. The doctrine of the priesthood of believers is very true, that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus and are saved and forgiven of their sin, we are God's witnesses. We testify to the gospel. We are his priests. And so what we have here is Jesus commissioning his disciples. And he says here in verse 21, just as the Father sent me, so Jesus looks to himself as the example, God the Father sent me to you, and just as he has done this, I'm getting ready to send you too. And verse 22, he said, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now verse 22 is something I really want to make sure we understand clearly before we get to 23. The works of the Holy Spirit in our modern situation has been so focused on the gifts of the Spirit that if you look at this passage through that filter, you're going to miss what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not breathing the Holy Spirit on his disciples to give them the gift of tongues. He's not breathing on them the Holy Spirit to give them the gift of prophecy. He's not giving them any of the gifts that the Pentecostal charismatic movement really emphasizes in this day, today. We have to understand what Jesus is doing here. What's the role of the Holy Spirit in Scripture? The work of the Holy Spirit begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. How did all things come into creation? God spoke and he breathed out the Spirit upon the waters. God created all that there is. His Holy Spirit was there at the beginning of creation And he breathed on the earth. He gives life to Adam through breath. He gives life for everything. And and anytime we see in the Old Testament imagery of breathing the Spirit, we see that the Spirit and breath are the same. When God breathes, he's breathing the Spirit. The Old Testament also shows us that the role of the Holy Spirit is very clear and evident through the Old Testament prophets. If you were a prophet of the Old Testament, you were endowed with the Holy Spirit with a special anointing from God as God's voice to the people. And the Old Testament prophets, what they spoke is our Scripture. So the role of the Holy Spirit there in the Old Testament is to actually produce God's words through prophecy as his word that we now have as the scripture. Thirdly, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament also shows that the Spirit is necessary to convey skills upon special needs and purposes within God's people and within his kingdom. 
We look at Exodus chapter 31 when God is giving instruction on how to build the tabernacle. It is the Holy Spirit that is given to the artisans in chapter 31 of Exodus on how to craft all of the ornaments of the temple, even how to sew the fabric of the tent of meeting. Everything, when you read in Exodus 31, all of the skills of the craftsmen came because of the Holy Spirit endowing them with it. In Genesis chapter 41, we see that Joseph, when he rises in prominence in Egypt and and he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt next to Pharaoh, his gift of administration we see throughout his entire life from from his boyhood all the way up to his adulthood, that gift of administration and Joseph's strength of character was given to him as a gift from the Holy Spirit. We see throughout the book of Judges, every time that God raises up a judge to judge the land and to be the word and to be his voice, these judges were given a special presence of the Holy Spirit to do what they did. Lastly, we see any time God raises up kings in the Old Testament, even even King Saul, before he falls from grace, and as God raises up David, All of the kings that God raises and puts into place, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them a special capacity to be king. So the Holy Spirit has has a rich history all the way back to Genesis. We have to understand what Jesus is doing here. In John chapter 20, verse 22, when Jesus breathes upon his disciples, he is giving them everything necessary for them to now go and proclaim the gospel. Whenever someone is commissioned to do ministry by God himself through his son Jesus Christ, there is a special prayer and a receiving of the Spirit to endow them and to give them everything they need, the confidence, the power, the security, even the wisdom on how to proclaim the gospel. That's what's happening here. Jesus is not breathing upon the disciples as, and giving them gifts as we see in Acts chapter 2. What's God, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's commissioning these disciples, giving them everything that they need, everything that is necessary to become the man that Christ needs to establish the church. It's almost as if Jesus is kind of giving them a down payment for the coming of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. This is a special receiving of the Spirit for a special commissioning. Now that sets up verse 23. Let me read verse 23 for us and let us understand what's happening. If you, Jesus says this to them. Here's the words of Jesus. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, it's very important for us to understand the history of this verse. Throughout much of the church, throughout much of church history, especially the medieval Catholicism, this verse was used as, as justification for forgiveness of sins from the priests. In the Catholic tradition, you have this practice of penance and salvation. If you sin, you go to the priest, and the priest grants you some kind of penance that you must perform and do, and then and only then are you forgiven. This verse right here in verse 23 is actually pointed to as justification for that. Right, Assurance of salvation in the Catholic tradition comes only through the church. That's the emphasis. Because the Catholic church reads this text and says that Jesus commissioned his apostles, his disciples, as 
the priests and you must come to them because they have the power to forgive. In other words, a priest speaks penance as if it is a right of the church and that is how you're saved. That's how you're forgiven. That's the interpretation of this text. Now, that's one interpretation. Now let's look at what it really means. The Protestant evangelical tradition on this text looks at the way that the Catholic Church had come into error by the time of the 1500s. And they see that there was a corruption going on in the church because they had taken texts like this and distorted it to the point that salvation was no longer from Jesus Christ himself. Salvation was only through men who were priests in the church. In other words, the church said, you give us money, you pay penance, you buy indulgences. The idea of buying indulgences had become so popular by the time of Martin Luther that the Catholic Church at that time had become so corrupt they had distorted the truth of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. So what does this text mean? See, in the Protestant evangelical tradition, assurance of salvation can be confirmed through Jesus Christ, but the way Jesus does this is that when we talk with one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and we confess to one another our sin, that's when we know that we have been forgiven not from each other, but through what Christ has done through us. You realize that you and I as Christians receive the promise of Christ's forgiveness at the moment of our repentance and our embrace and our faith in what Christ has done. At the moment that we repent, and I'm sorry, not many churches preach that anymore, that you don't have to change. Jesus loves you just the way you are, and you don't have to be anybody different. Yes, you do. Jesus does love you where you are. He loves you in your sin. He loves you in your filth and in your dirt and in your squalor. But he doesn't leave you there. He loves you to bring you out of it. That's what salvation means. He's going to come down into the muck and the mire. He's going to come right down in the middle of your sin. But he's going to say, I've got something better. And that requires repentance. That requires... See, repentance and faith are working at the same time here in the moment of forgiveness and salvation. And what that does, that gives us the promise, the assurance that we are forgiven And once we have that forgiveness, we have the confidence to speak that to each other. It's not that we are given the gift and the power to forgive. That's the, that's the, where, that's where this passage has been misinterpreted. When Jesus looks at the disciples in verse 23, and he says to them, if you, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. Jesus is not transferring his authority to forgive to the disciples. That's where this is misinterpreted. Jesus is not transferring his authority to forgive to someone else. What he is doing here is he is actually reminding the apostles and the disciples and subsequently all Christians who come after it. That we are not the authors of forgiveness. Jesus is the author of forgiveness. What we are, we are witnesses of that forgiveness. And what a better witness than to look at somebody and say, you know what, I was just like you. I was exactly where you are. 
And I will listen to you because I have been there. I can relate to you. And once you listen to someone's story and you listen to their trauma and you listen to their misery and you listen to their heart, you can look at them and say, I am forgiven because Jesus loves me and you can be forgiven too. It's not that we are granting forgiveness. God, through Jesus Christ, is not giving us power to forgive. That is Jesus' power alone. We are just heralds of the message. That's what Jesus is saying here to the disciples. Look here, turn over here to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what the apostle Peter, who, has, who, who would have been there and listened to Jesus say this. Looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of First Peter. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sights of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter here, understanding what Jesus had said in John chapter 20, is writing here in his epistle exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Flip over to James chapter 5 if you wish. James chapter 5 real quick. In James chapter 5 verse 16, it's the same thing. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You see, we have the responsibility to confess our sins to each other. Not as if we're confessing to a priest hoping the priest would forgive us. We confess to one another in hopes that we will be assured that our sin is forgiven because Jesus himself says our sins are forgiven. I, as your pastor, do not have the authority to tell you, you know, I forgive your sin. But here's what I do have the authority to do as a Christian. I can look at you lovingly and listen to your heart and I'll say, you know, Jesus can forgive you. You see the point? You see the difference in the language there? That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. You see, strictly speaking, Christ alone forgives. And also, at the same time, strictly speaking, Christ alone retains the forgiveness and does not give it. Notice here what Jesus says here in John chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that's a truth of Scripture that not many people want to focus on. There's not many preachers who want to preach that Jesus will withhold forgiveness. But He will. And how do we know that? It's because Jesus knows the heart of the sinner. Jesus knows the heart of the Christian. He knows if you mean it or not. He knows if you're playing a game. He knows if you're just giving lip service. If you are sincerely broken in your spirit, He will grant forgiveness. That's a guarantee. But if you're arrogant and you're prideful, that forgiveness is not granted. We looked at this last week when we looked at the thieves on the cross with Jesus. Do you remember that sermon last week? I posted it on our podcast and our sermon app this morning, so it's there now. But if you want to go back and listen to last week's sermon, remember there's a contrast there with Jesus on the cross. He has one thief on one side that is arrogant and demanding, and he's got another thief on the other side that is humble and broken. Which one does Jesus look to and say, today 
you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't look at the one with er- who has arrogance and pride he, and say that. He looks to the one who is humble and broken and recognizes who Jesus is. Even in that moment of misery on the cross, this other thief on the cross is promised by Christ himself. You're forgiven. You're coming with me to heaven. That's, that's the authority of Jesus alone. Notice that Jesus doesn't give forgiveness to the other thief. You remember that? So what, how, I mean, how do we do this? What, what does this mean for us? As Christians, we can look at this text today of all days and realize that the only, re, the only way that the forgiveness is even possible here is because Jesus has now come out of the grave. Because what are, what, what are the wages of sin, according to Romans chapter 3? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of life Eternal is something that Jesus himself can grant to those who are rescued from death. The only way to overcome death is because Jesus was able to do it. That's a hope that we grab on to today. If you've ever lost a loved one, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, a friend, a classmate, you know how powerful grief can be when you lose a loved one. It's overwhelming because it's final. But the hope here through Jesus Christ is that that death is not as final as sin makes it out to be for us. We have the gift of eternal life in Christ through his resurrection. Had Jesus not come out of the grave, as we remember today, we would have no hope. There would be no forgiveness possible. There would be no eternity allowed. That's the truth of the gospel here. So what does this text here tell us, verses 19 through 23 of John chapter 20? Jesus speaking words of comfort and commission to his disciples. He's also speaking the same thing to us as Christians today. We have the same commissioning here that Jesus is giving his disciples. At the moment of our salvation, at the moment of our repentance and, and, and forgiveness of our sin, We have been given God's Holy Spirit to be renewed and changed into Christ-likeness. And that grants us the privilege of being God's witnesses, being those who proclaim the truth of this salvation that we now know. And we can share with others this assurance and this peace that we have that we are forgiven. And this forgiveness that we are certain of comes through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection. And we preach it. The sermons I preached this time last year focused on the importance of resurrection in the gospel. The Apostle Paul, throughout his epistles in the New Testament, comes back to this same theme of resurrection over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, if you cannot say anything else, Paul tells us, at least, if, if, if you're witnessing to somebody who will not listen to you, at least tell them about the resurrection. Don't tell them that Jesus wants you to belong today, and he wants you just the way you are. That's only half the message. He meets you where you are, but he wants you to be like him. Much different language. He wants you just the way you are so that he can change you into who he wants you to be. Jesus Christ changed history when he came out of that grave. He even takes on 
a new physical form that no one had ever seen before. Jesus Christ is eternal. He always has been. He always will be. He always is, just like his Father. But Jesus has experienced human reality. Ponder that for a minute. What is your reality? Oh, no, give me a cup of coffee. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. Is that your day? Is that your reality? Do you depend on that juice in the morning to get going? That's fine. Do you, are you exhausted and worn out at the end of the day because your body is tired? Is that your reality? Is your reality facing medical problems? Is your reality facing a boss that is a jerk? Is your reality that you feel overwhelmed because your children tie you down? There's a reality that Jesus grants that transcends all of that. He produces a reality for us that no one else is capable of giving. He gives us a sense of eternity, an assurance, and a reality of eternity. And that only comes through His forgiveness. And that's the joy, and that's what we're celebrating. Amen? Jesus Christ is commissioning not only His disciples here, He is commissioning each and every one of us. We have a story to tell. And the story we have to tell is, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're messing it up. Your life is just a mess. Let's just be real with people. Let's, let, let's not sugarcoat it and say, well, that's okay. God's going to overlook whatever it is you're doing. No. God's going to look exactly at what you're doing and show you the truth of what you're doing. And then He's going to show you the hope that you can have through Jesus Christ. That's the message that we have. Are you willing to tell it that way? You go, are you willing to have people hate you because you do? See, the problem is we don't want to tell the truth of the gospel the way Jesus tells it because of the consequences of doing so. Jesus gives us everything we need to stand and firmly tell the truth. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. The gospel that you have given to your servant John to give to us today is rich with truth. It is John the Apostle that your son Jesus loved. When we read that gospel, God, we see an intimate connection between Jesus and John the Apostle himself. And I pray, God, this morning as we remember and celebrate resurrection, that you allow us to experience that intimacy that John writes about here that you give us the, the, the privilege of experiencing the forgiveness and the certainty that we are forgiven, as John writes here, as Jesus speaks it. Help us to know it and to feel it and to love it. Dear God, there may be some people here right now listening to these words in this room or listening to the podcast later who may actually say, I don't understand what this means. I don't understand what... Uh, forgiveness means no one can forgive me because I'm so low. Today of all days, dear God, your word speaks boldly and loudly that forgiveness is possible and it's only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to see that, Father God. If anyone needs to hear that, Lord, let them hear it clearly. Those of us, dear God, who are forgiven, and who fail you every single day, remind us that there is hope of forgiveness, and we continue to come back to you every day. 
Lord, I pray for your mercies on us all and your and, and your provision for us this week as we leave, but as we also pray for your direction as a church, point the way. And at the same time, God, always through it, point back to this truth of today that there is a certainty that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Help us, dear God, to embrace this depth of truth. Help us to be the witnesses that, that you deserve about the forgiveness that we have. Give us the passion to love this more than anything else. I pray, God, that we all would hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.